I honestly thought standing up here, I was going to feel a lot more nervous. Um, and looking out at you, I feel like I'm looking at like a hundred people that I just love. Um, so I'm really excited. Um, as I was preparing for tonight, um, God just reminded me over and over and over again, uh, how my story fits into what we're going to be going through tonight. And some of you, uh, may have, may have heard this before in Sunday school, you may, you know, think of a cartoon picture in your head. Um, but what I would ask is as we go through this, which we're going to be in Luke 15, so you can turn there now, um, as we go through this parable, um, that you would open your eyes, open your ears and maybe hear something different that maybe you haven't heard before. Um, so if you can turn Luke 15, uh, I am going to read and then we're going to work through it. Uh, so Luke 15 verse 11, we're going to go through 32. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country And he sent them into the fields to feed pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. And no one gave him anything, gave anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So I want to give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. Uh, And if you look in verses one and two, it says now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying this man receives sinners and eats with him. So we have a couple different groups of people. We have uh, the sinners and the tax collectors. The tax collectors were Jews that were not liked by the other Jews because they took more money than they should have been taking. And then we have the sinners, which would be prostitutes or the lowly, the people that were looked on like 
you're not worth my time. And then we have the Pharisees and the scribes who knew their stuff and looked at the sinners like, I don't have time for you. And so God, Jesus is here and he's preaching to these people and explaining to them how he's come for everyone. And so this is like a three-part story. We have the story after this. Uh, you may be familiar with it. Uh, the lost sheep. And then you have the lost coin. And in both of these stories, there's a celebration over what's been lost. Kind of like if you had a favorite pet and it went missing and you would rejoice when it came back, right? Because you love that pet. Well, this story is about a lost son. Uh, and so let's, let's dive right into it. So in verse 11, a man had two sons. So naturally, if there's two sons, there would be a younger and an older. And the younger son goes up to the father and says, uh, I don't really care whether you're dead or alive, basically. Uh, I just want what's coming to me when you are dead. So I want my inheritance. It would essentially be like you walking up to your dad and being like, hey, uh, I want your car and I want $100,000 um, and I'm just going to take off with it. And I don't really care uh, that I would get it when you were dead. I'm pretty sure if I walked up to my dad and I said that to him, he probably, I, I mean, I don't even know. I don't know what he would do, but I don't want to find out. But this younger son had this confidence in him to go ask. And then we see how the father responds. And in verse 12, it says, so he divided his wealth. He didn't argue. He didn't say you're disrespectful. He didn't say any of those things. He just said, okay, you want it here. You can have it. And so we continue on. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything and he went on a journey to a distant country. Your translation may say far country. And for him in this parable, it very well may have meant far country distance. For us, when we look at this, far country doesn't necessarily mean that we like jumped on a plane and went to California or went to Europe. You can be in a far country right here. Uh, a far country is basically where man goes to live without God. So it would essentially be, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I don't really care if God sees me or cares about what I'm doing. And so you could be in a far country in the privacy of your bedroom. You could be in a far country on the weekend on a, in a secret place that you know you can go to with your friends and nobody's going to know what you're going to do. You could be in a far country in the privacy of your disappearing Snapchat conversations. You know, you, you're talking with somebody, but it disappears, right? Like, no one's going to see it. You could be in a far country even in that. It's a place where man goes to live without God, without the consequences of those rules. And so it begs the question, why do we go to the far country? Why do we go to this place that we, we can't see God? We're not, we're not um, under God's rule. And there's four things. I think there's many different reasons why we go there, but there's four that I want to talk about. And the first one is this desire for freedom. We don't like rules. For some of you, some of you are in a private school, and so those rules are, there's a lot of them. Some of you are in public school, so there's maybe not as many rules. I grew up in a private school where I wore uniforms, and there were a lot of rules, and your skirt had to be all the way down to your ankles, you know, kind of deal. Not really. They weren't down to my ankles. Um, but we don't like rules, right? Some of you are driving. You're on the highway. It says 65 speed limit. You're going... 70, 
85, right? 80. And I've never done that. I've never speeded in my life. But we don't, <laughs> but we don't like rules, okay? So, so to go to a far country, sometimes it is like we just don't want to be held accountable for things. We don't want anyone telling us what we can and cannot do. A second thing is this power of sin. Um, and the enemy has a way of making the most destructible things for us look really, really good. He has a way of convincing you that what you're doing with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever is going to be the best thing for you. And really it's not. And it's just going to lead you to a really dark place. And we see that in first Peter five, eight through nine, it says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In John 10, 10, it says that that the thief comes, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, but I have come that they might have life and life to the full. So the power of sin is real. Another thing, the third thing could be this lack of community and isolation. No one to hold you accountable. So you can do whatever you want. It says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. It's really easy to do this. Sometimes we just isolate ourselves and we don't tell anyone what's going on in our life, either because we feel like we would be judged or we just don't want to tell anybody because we want to be free. The fourth thing which I think for some people is one of the biggest things is your circumstances. Sometimes our circumstances get so bad that we start to get angry and we doubt God. We think I've been good all this time. I deserve better. I deserve better than this. And so there, those are four things that can cause us to go to this far country, just like this younger son. And so if you look back down in verse 14, it says, now when he had spent everything, A severe famine, which is reality, occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so it continues to say, uh, after he had spent everything, he goes and hires himself out to somebody where he's literally feeding pigs, which in that culture was like the biggest humiliation that you could ever imagine. So he's in the field. Reality, humans can't even give anything to just eat the pods that the pigs were eating, which in reality, humans can't even digest what the pigs were eating and no one would give him anything. And he's quickly taken this downward slope to rock bottom and rock bottom is the worst place that you can imagine being. And the thing about sin is this, there's three things. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it'll cost you more than you were willing to pay. And I know that last part rhymed. Take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you were willing to pay. The story doesn't end here. In verse 17, it says, but when he came to his senses. So he's at rock bottom, and when you're at rock bottom, there's really no way to go except for up, right? And so he came to his senses, and he starts thinking about his father. And reflecting on his father's character. And the whole thing about coming to your senses, I heard it put like this. When his sinning had left him utterly bankrupt and hungry, 
He was then a candidate for salvation for he realized that nothing else could satisfy him. He had nothing else. No money, no food, nothing. And it says then that he starts reciting in his head how he's going to go back to his father and ask him basically, like, will you just hire me back as one of your hired servants? Because your hired servants have it better than I have it. The crumbs from your table would be better than what I have now. And so the younger son comes to this place of repentance. He's reflecting on his father's character that he's good and he's compassionate and he was a provider and he was loving. And so he starts making his way back home. And so in verse 20, it says, so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him. And as I was preparing for this, I had this like mental picture of this son at the end of the road. And like he's standing there and at the end of this long road, he like sees somebody that's coming in his direction. And then he realizes, oh, that's my dad. And and I wonder if he started getting nervous, like. The last time I was home, I told my dad, basically, you're dead to me. So if, is he going to come to me and say, well, you're dead to me now. Get off my property. Or is he going to run? Is he going to, like, beat me up? He's running real fast. And so I wonder if he was scared and what he was thinking in that moment. And then upon him coming close, his father embraces him, kisses him. And so we remember before how the son had like recited what he was going to tell his father. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Hire me as one of your servants because they have it better than me. And so he starts saying the same thing to him, but he only gets two thirds of the way through. Where he says, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could finish in verse 22, but the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and kill the fattened calf because it's time to celebrate because my son was lost and now he's found. And the robe was normally used for like a guest of honor and the ring was a sign of authority and the sandals on his feet, slaves didn't wear those. And the fattened calf was saved for the most special occasions. And so this was like a head-to-toe celebration. I've put everything on you, and now we're going to eat, and we're going to party. The way his father responds is unbelievable. His father is basically saying, when you lose something, like, there's no time for me to hit you upside the head. We're rejoicing. But the story doesn't end here. So if you look down in verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. It doesn't say he saw music and dancing. It says he heard it, which means that this party must have been pretty great, right? He heard dancing. I don't know how you hear dancing, but it must have been crazy, okay? So he comes and he's confused. Like, what's going on? I've been in the field. I've been working all this time. And now there's a party going on. And where's my invitation? And he asks one of the servants, what's going on? And so he tells him, your brother's back. Your brother's back. He's been lost. Your father's celebrating. 
And in verse 28, it says, but he became angry and was not willing to go in. So like everybody's partying and he's thinking, oh, if I don't go into this party, well, they're really gonna, they're really gonna feel it when really nobody cares if you're sitting outside pouting outside of this party, but he thinks that it's gonna be the best thing to do. So he's sitting outside and if I was the father, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing out here? But instead he goes out and it says that he pleaded and he entreated with him, which is like this begging, like, please come in, come in and celebrate. And look at how the older son responds. But he answered and said to his father, look, which if I, if I use that word with my parents, I mean, I don't know, it wouldn't go well. But he says, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. He's essentially saying to his father, uh, I've served you all these years, but I really only did it because I was expecting you to give me something. I didn't do it because I loved you. I did it because I'm expecting, like, in due time, I'm going to get my reward. And again, the father responds. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for your brother was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And so I want to share with you uh, part of my story, my testimony, Um, because I relate very much to this older brother. In high school. I was that girl um, that you would consider the good girl, like the one that everyone was trying to get to do the things that you shouldn't be doing. Um, one time, I, two of my friends took me out on a kayak, and I thought we were just going kayaking. And we get out to the middle of the lake, and they pull out some drugs, and they're like, all right, let's go. And I'm out in the middle of this lake. And I got angry. And I said, you bring me back to shore. And, and they treated me like trash. The whole way back, they were just talking about me. I'm sitting there fuming. These are the kind of people that I had to deal with on a regular basis, but I stood my ground. I knew what I had to do. I knew I needed to be good and follow the rules, and I loved God. And I was one of those Christians that you might consider to be judgmental at the time because I would look at these people, and I would think, how could you ever do that? How could you ever do that? It says in the Bible not to do that. And so I would judge people. Well, so I graduate high school. I go through college. I went to a Bible college, and there were a lot of rules there. And I, I get out of college, and then I meet my husband, Andrew. We get married. And two years into marriage, well, we're going on seven years in April. Um, two years into marriage, we were living in Austin, Texas. And we were in an apartment and he worked all day and I worked from home and I started getting really lonely and I didn't know anybody. And I grew lonelier and lonelier. And then I grew depressed. And then there was no joy. And I started getting angry at God. I've been good all this time. Why, why won't you help me? Like, why won't you save me? Why won't you give me like joy? And I didn't understand what was going on, and I just got mad. And like we talked about before, when you're isolated, when your circumstances are bad, 
it can cause you to go to a place that you don't really want to go or you don't know that you don't really want to go. And so my parents weren't there. I'm married now. They're not my, well, they're still my authority, but they're not there. And Andrew, my husband's at work all day, so I can do whatever, whatever I want. I've been good all this time. I've resisted all this stuff. What good did it get me? Nothing. And so I started doing some things that I look back now and I regret. Things that no one knew I was doing because I, I just wouldn't tell anyone. Andrew didn't know. Nobody knew. For weeks. Going here, going here, trying a little bit of this. And eventually, I got to this place like rock bottom. I wasn't working with pigs, but I was the guilt that I felt was unbearable. There's nothing like it. And there, we went on vacation for a whole week. Andrew still had no idea what had gone on while he was at work. And the guilt became so much for me. And so three nights I laid in bed and I could not sleep. And on the third night, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I went in the living room and I'm crying and I'm praying. Like, I know I need to tell Andrew, but what is he going to think? Like, he didn't sign up for this. He didn't know I was doing this stuff. He's going to look at me and he's just going to be like, we're done. I didn't know you were capable of this. And so I go and I wake him up out of a dead sleep. And we walk into our living room. And I just start crying. And he just says, Allie, what is it? Share with him what I'd been doing. And I'm like bracing myself. I don't know if you've ever told anybody something that you're just like bracing yourself for like something terrible. But I was bracing myself for the moment that he said, okay, well, we're done. This is over. And instead, he opened his arms and he wrapped me in his arms and he said, it's okay. I love you. We're going to get through this. I'm with you. I forgive you. It's okay. Instantly. The grace that he showered on me was like any kind of grace that I had ever imagined in my, I had never experienced it. My family growing up, there was a lot of like, I forgive you, but don't do it again or else. Like it just, it wasn't the same kind of thing. And so I want to share a journal entry with you to give you an idea of how bad and and how dark it was for me in that time before Andrew showed me this grace like the father showed to, to his sons. And I was sitting in church and I was not listening to the message because I just couldn't. And I was so angry and I sat in the back and I just wrote in my journal and I wrote this journal entry. And I said, God, I feel so frustrated. Why must I have this constant turmoil in my head? It's like a roller coaster that never stops. Even now, sitting here in church, I'm battling these thoughts and I hate it. It's like being in constant bondage to myself. This can't be normal. This can't be how I must live forever. Lack of drive to seek you with no joy. I'm so tired of feeling this way. Why won't you save me from this torment? Why must I wake up with these burdens every day of my life? I look around and I just wonder if I'm alone feeling like this. Are there any other people that feel the way I do? Who wake up every day wondering if it's going to be a good day? 
I hate opening my mouth lately because I feel like everything is so negative. I have nothing positive to say or offer. I have to fake being okay and in turn feel like no one understands me. How did I get here? What have I become? I don't even know anymore. I feel like there is no light in me, no hope. Do you even care about me? Or did you give up on me because I failed too many times? I want to ask for help, but I feel like I will just end up right back here, a failure. I want to do more in life. I'd love to serve in a church with students, junior high and high school, but I feel like I'm always struggling to find my own way. How could I ever help someone else? I feel like as soon as this church service ends, I'll just sway. I'm a bit of thinking. I can feel this heavy cloud over me. I have no idea how to make it go away. I'm trapped. I hate that I can never find true joy anymore. There is no end in sight for me. I need a miracle. And when I read that, I don't even know who that girl is anymore. But God has taken me to a completely different place. But I look back on that last sentence, I need a miracle. And the truth that I didn't know at that point was the miracle had already happened. The miracle had happened on the cross. Jesus had died in my place for that time in my life, for my rebellion, for my self-righteousness. And I was searching for everything else except for the one thing that I needed, and that was Jesus. And it was in that moment with Andrew at 3 a.m. in our living room that I felt like I finally understood that Jesus is the way home. His grace covers it all. And he welcomes me with arms wide open, unashamed, not thinking about anything but rejoicing over what was lost and what, not, what is found. 